Good day, my name is Jamal Jackson Rogers, also known as Just Jamal the Poet, and you are listening to the Mountain Movers Podcast. Welcome back. In this episode, I chatted with Jamal, a powerful artist who really knows how to use his voice for good. His uplifting energy took me through his perspective on the Black Lives Matter movement, and make sure you stick around to hear him recite one of his original poems. Now is the time to open our ears our minds, and our hearts to the world around us. I'm using my voice, my platform, my privilege in the best way I can. This is Jamal. Listen to him. Learn from him. Feel him. Cue that intro in three, two... This is the Mountain Movers Podcast, a platform for you, the ones with a voice to be heard, but no microphone to speak it. This is your time, your chance to become more than they believe you are, more than you believe you are. So let's do this together. What's going on, Jamal? How you doing? Today's blessed, Jake. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, every day above soil, as my friend Gabriel White Duck says, is a good day. So I'm feeling good today. How about yourself? No, I'm good. Uh, a lot in the world right now is uh, feeling like it's creeping up. But there are moments where, um, just like this podcast, I get to sort of step into this other world and you know have these conversations with people like you. And I'm always grateful for that. Thank you. I appreciate uh, you uh, providing your platform for people to speak and share their thoughts, their stories, their aspirations. So kudos to you, my friend. Thank you, brother. So uh, just to kick things off now, uh, let's give the listeners uh, an insight into who you are and what do you do? That's the question that when you ask an artist that it's always the most complicated because there's like three vantage points. The one is the first one is who do I feel, what, who do I think I am in terms of my internal talk and what my, my conscious tells me, or who, does, who I am according to the public, or who I am on paper according to the titles that I've uh, you know, accumulated over time. But to make it simple, I'll tell you who I, I, I believe I, I'm a person to be. I, I feel like I'm a creative who desires to unite people, um, regardless of backgrounds, on imagination and on um, human, human, human aspects that give us a chance to understand each other more. So I'm an artist, I'm a poet, songwriter, hip hop artist, um, arts educator, but I like to think that my foundation is trying to bring people together for a better today and tomorrow. Oh, I like the sound of that, man. Um, I, I've known you for, I guess, a few years now, uh, just kind of sort of through the grapevine. We met through poetry primarily, and we've had each other on Facebook over the last few years, and I've really... I really appreciate everything you're doing. You're really into um, the community. You're a very big community um, builder, leader. And uh, could you talk to us a bit about uh, what you do in that? So um, in, in, my, in my role as a community um, activist and artist, uh, you know, what I, what I often take part in is finding ways to create access to uh, gatherings or meetings that are based around art. So 
um, I, I tend to use art as kind of the, the catalyst or the conduit to tapping into people's humanity. And so for me, <clears throat> uh, what I do within the community is I generally like to create events or programs, gatherings that are centered around finding our voice, finding a person's expression or higher purpose through expression, and then being able to uh, creatively find a way to share that or you know disseminate that amongst other communities. So it's that, that interconnectedness is what I'm trying to do within my role as a community artist and activist. And so what got you into that in the beginning? How did you get that foot in the door? Well, uh, that's a good question. I found when I first came to Can, like when I first moved to Ottawa, um, that I found community in the, the, the area of Ottawa that I lived in. And this was a low-income area where there were diverse people from all over the world. And <clears throat> it was just great to see this kind of utopian togetherness that happens in a neighborhood where there's people from all four corners of the earth. Uh, however, as I grew up, I started to see marginali marginalization happening and occurring where people began to stick to their own communities. And I started to miss or I wasn't able to see anymore some of that interconnection and that intersectionality that happened when I was young, when I came to Ottawa at nine years old. So for me, it was really important. Like I started to feel like what's happening to the idea of community. I think people were getting in that the communities I saw, they started to form their own personal communities from whatever nationality they, you know, they're from or heritage or, and then, but that, that, that interconnectedness was losing between other communities. And so my desire was to never feel, and I started to feel alone because I'm from a small community, um, Afro-Caribbean community, and I started to feel kind of isolated. So from that feeling of isolation and, and witnessing <clears throat> very little growth in terms of the other communities coming together, uh, by the time I was a teen, I knew that I wanted to be somebody who brings people back together, not uh, and, 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 and kind of like uh, celebrates our differences, but also uniting on our commonalities as well. Well, and that's huge. And I think that is, in a nutshell, what a leader is supposed to represent. Given everything that's going on right now, you know, over the last week, over the last two, two weeks, over several, several years, um, this uh, Black Lives Matter movement um, is really putting spotlights on those leaders, on those people that are not only there to stand for themselves where they are, but to stand for so many other people right the in over time a lot of civil movements within our within the modern era like we're talking of the last hundred years a lot of them uh internationally the biggest ones have been <clears throat> especially civil movements based around liberation have been organized and mobilized by black people and it's that this is this is historical fact. If you look in uh, within history, um, from South Africa and apartheid, right, and uh, and dismantling that system, at least in South Africa, <clears throat> to um, the Black Panther Party and uh, the, uh, the Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and so on of these of the United States, but also of my great 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 grandfather here, Albert Jackson here in uh, Canada, Ottawa, who helped to mobilize the black community to allow for just uh, representation uh, within the workforce, especially in Canada Post. There have been, and of course, uh, Viola Desmond, there have been black activists that have been leading um, the march when it comes to uh, 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 creating civil liberties that all of uh, people enjoy uh, today. So it's, it's not um, something that we should be turning a blind eye to. And because 
we have been in some of those leadership positions historically, the black community, it tends to also lend to other communities being able to um, have the privilege of, of experiencing their civil, civil liberties now. When we say Black Lives Matter, we often feel as black individuals, if, if we can dismantle anti-racism within our systems, then we can dismantle racism all over the world for any demographic of people. So what's the first step in doing that? The first step in doing it, I mean, from a organizational standpoint, you have to have make sure that your mandates are strong and you want to make sure that the world hears you. And given that we're at a time where technology <clears throat> is booming and we're in the IT you know, era, uh, information and technology, we have to make sure we're utilizing um, the connectivity that's, that we can tap into through technology as optimally as possible. I mean, that's from a obviously organizational standpoint, but to, to really dismantle it, it takes sometimes some disruption. And uh, that's, you know, I don't, I don't know in history where some type of disruption within the context of what is currently happening and what we're trying to defeat or uh, stand against, uh, where some type of disruption wasn't necessary, even from the most peaceful protests and the ones that <clears throat> didn't. Uh, seem like they were uh, include any violence or aggression from to the ones that uh, oftentimes would turn on to riots, disruption is necessary. So given that we're at a time when, you know, COVID-19 and this, this uh, you know, this virus that has spread across the world, we have to ask ourselves, what is the appropriate way to disrupt the system? Because through disruption, we turn the attention from what is the status quo to uh, what is wrong and what is, uh, you know, uh, needs to be fixed. So the march, for example, was very disruptive, right? Um, for example, the indigenous um, uh, 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 blockades that were going on maybe about three weeks, uh, three months ago, four months ago, while some people felt that it was, uh, it, it hindered on their ability to travel and it really disrupted the, the way they communicated and such throughout the city and traveling, the indigenous community needed to bring attention to their case and their situation by disrupting the status quo. It's the only way it's going to get attention enough to for political people uh, to take notice. It's not the only way. It's one of the ways. Um, but it's one of the ways to gain quick attention very fast, to get the people at the table fast. <clears throat> yeah. And so once they're at the table, once they're at the table with the dishes served right in front of them, you know, what are they supposed to feel? What are, what are they supposed to indulge in? Well, I think history. Um, you know, trying to change someone's perspective is, is, is difficult work. In fact, I don't think any movement, that should be the intent. We're going to change people's perspectives. We need, there has to be um, empirical evidence through historical fact uh, brought to the table. And then from that, there has to be present evidence, too, of the systematic, you know, whatever it is that you're dealing with, systematic oppression or prejudice. There has to be evidence presently, uh, presently sorry, that it's still occurring in a different form or if, it, if not in the same form. So changing the perspectives of an individual is a very difficult task. And I don't think organizations, that should be their, one of their mandates, to change someone's perspective. Rather, to gain momentum, you need allies, people on the other side who are going to support your cause, especially those who are in a privileged position by being, um, you know, by finding, by, by being just in their position, uh, having access to more rights and civil liberties than other people in society. So a movement can't uh, really 
change things unless you have people outside of the movement who are going to be an ally and support your movement as well. And so who are these people outside of the movement? Who are you referring to? Well, if we're, we're talking about Black Lives Movement, we definitely need uh, people uh, of non-color. So we, you know, we need people who are either in the white community, Asiatic community, people who don't consider some, themselves from the African diaspora or Afro-Caribbean. These individuals are going to help dismantle systematic racism. That's what Black Lives Matter is paying attention to. They're paying attention to how privilege has situated itself in many institutions that are supposed to offer people a, you know, democratic uh, existence or society to live in. And because privilege has situated itself so comfortably, there are so many different, I guess, nationalities or um, uh, backgrounds of people that profit and experience life very differently from others because of that privilege. So, you know, if it's white people, if it's Asiatic people, um, we call these people people of color, um, and if it's, you know, anybody around the world other than black people, their job is to recognize that there are the black, the black anti-black racism is a real thing within our institutions, and then look at the empirical evidence, again, from history and present, and then try to help construct, you know, uh, uh, construct or add to the movement rather than devalue it and discredit it. Um, if I'm to speak for myself here, just as um, a white male, um, yeah. I don't always know. I don't always know where to um, where to put my foot. You know, where where to catch my footing, where to jump onto this momentum and run with it. Um, I know I'm not the only one that feels that way. Um, some days it's you know it's easier than others just to um, be able to feel like you're you know doing something. To help, how do we, how do we figure out, and how do we realize for ourselves what, what, and how to lend that hand? The work starts within, I believe, and understanding uh, how to not take up space is important. Uh, for example, I have privilege as well, being a man, a heterosexual man. I know that in some spaces, not all, but some spaces, um, my my presence can take up space where there are women um, in, the, in, in attendance. And I oftentimes think to myself, if I'm in a space where there are more women or women are there to speak, that I should be conscious of how much I speak or speak over them, which I don't think I do, but how much space I take up with my, my perspective and views. And so that, that internal work, I, I'm trying to be conscious of as much as possible being privileged uh, in a in a patriarchal society, and so for a white person who's thinking, where do they start? Uh, they could perhaps start with some of the uh, the the thoughts they have about the black experience, about racism, about people of uh, uh, of color, and start working on what they understand those experiences to be, as compared to what they've been told and taught all along uh, throughout their life, which oftentimes is negative impressions of people that don't look like them. Yet oftentimes it is very negative impressions that white uh, people will be told or taught. And if any expressions at all, it's not negative, it's maybe nothing to note. So for example, in the school system, most of the notable people we learn about are people, uh, are non-melanated people, white people. 
We learn about the history, their historical impacts, their genius. But how often do we hear about the genius of people of color from around the world? How how many people can you name other than the civil rights activists uh, for their contributions in different spectrums and different institutions around the world that aren't white? And I know that from growing up in a diverse neighborhood and going to a very diverse school, that most of the people that I learned about to aspire to be were white. And it's not, yes, it's not about, in a sense, you know, white or black, you know, in a sense that anybody can can offer to society great inventions, great contributions. But if you're not seeing a representation of that within your society, you start to feel silenced, isolated, and you start to feel like your expression or your, your background is not important. And so for, I think, to start is look within yourself and ask yourself, do I have a bias against you know, this movement per se? Am I feeling like, well, black people shouldn't be so loud or, you know, well, uh, I think that, you know, the, the, the way that they're going about their marches and protests is not, is not really uh, the right way to do it. Those are all biases because what, what's happened over time is the white narrative has policed expressions that aren't like theirs. But if you look in the history of white expression, because if we're talking about different nationalities, I don't like to use the word races. If you look in the history of different nationalities, there's been expressions of revolt, violence, conquering within every, almost within every nation, okay? Tre- uh, treason and so on and so forth. So for example, in the Colin Kaepernick situation, everybody was telling, Ka- a lot, not everybody, a lot of people were saying Colin Kaepernick should not kneel, especially people who uh, loved the football and were white. They were saying Colin Kaepernick should not be kneeling. But now you see people changing their mind. Their views have changed, if hopefully it has changed. And that's because someone had to die because of that. Black people don't want to be in a position where people have to die in order for people's perspectives to be changed. You have to start working on that internal bias. So do you see a change coming? I feel like uh, a change is coming. I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm a hopeful and, op- and an optimist. However, um, I do feel like the work is just beginning now. Um, I, don't, I don't want, I wish, of course I wish, you know, humanity wasn't in the position we're in because it's so petty. It's actually, it's, it's actually the most, it's so ignorant that, we're, you know, this is a discussion, color of your skin. And it's so ignorant that it's actually arrogant. It's, it's to the point where it's arrogant because how dare we fight over color of someone's skin, right? And that be the biggest conversation in the world right now. Um, however, it's a reality. And so in that, you know, it's going to be small steps, but I do see a change coming. And what that change to me looks like is where Black voices and, and Black expression is appreciated within cultures all around the world. I have stories that I could tell for days about how I was discriminated against because of the color of my skin. If my hair was straighter and my eyes were, you know, maybe blue and my my skin color wasn't as brown as it was, I would have been treated differently in so many other occasions. And I can comp- and I know that's true because I can compare it to many of my white peers and friends that I had and the experiences they went through that were similar, but the outcome was different for them. <laughs> Right. And I'm, and I'm seeing a lot of instances nowadays where uh, people are finally starting to speak up. Even uh, Black Lives Matter aside, there are tons of other movements that are, um, that are happening right now just because people feel like they can be heard. People feel like that they don't have to be silent anymore, that they can speak up, that they can stand up for themselves now. And I think that's a beautiful, I think that's a beautiful thing. And as a poet, I'm sure that um, you have been able to speak up for quite a few things, even if it's if it if it's not in a conversation, you've been able to write it down in a poem. Is that right? Yeah, I I, I try to not 
fill all of my writings with political issues and social political issues. However, from time to time, when the when the, the you know when the energy and the wave is really flowing through me, I'll write. So I, I have some pieces that are based around sort of the the social political issues of the time, and you know they're not they're not pieces that I would uh, often prefer to write, but they have to, they're things that they have to be said. And where do you gather that inspiration from? So if it's not from social political um, movements, where where do you draw that that sense of fulfillment? Well, as an as a, as a as an artist, one of our main jobs, uh, one of our, our our responsibilities is to be able to observe and then interpret and then produce from that interpretation. Observe what's going on internally, externally, and then interpret it in our own format, and then hopefully produce something that demonstrates what you know the message of what we were feeling and going through. So, I, I often draw my inspiration from having the ability to listen and observe to what is going on externally, how that affects me internally, and then creating something from that point on. It's really the, the, the catalyst or the muse for it all is what I am observing. Um, as a dancer, that uh, I can definitely agree with that. Uh, most movement that I create, most pieces that I'll create, they're almost always centered around not only what's happening inside of me, but what's happening around me. And I mm-hmm. love when I can connect the two. What does the, mm-hmm. How does this space make feel? What does this person show me? What do they offer me? What can I offer them? Mm-hmm. That is the artistic license right there. When you can merge the two, uh, it comes together so beautifully when you can merge you know, what you are feeling, but also with what are you experiencing from your observations around you. I think that's the, that's the beautiful equation. And so do you feel that way about all the art that you make? Or, because I, can, I, I know that there are times where you know, I'm feeling, you know, the writer's block is real, and it's real in any means of artistic expression. And so yeah. when, you do, when you do hit those walls where you feel like you kind of have a dry spell going on, what, where, do you, where do you draw that inspiration well, first, first, uh, first of all, I don't have writer's block personally. I've never had it um, because oh. uh, I'm I, well. One, I'm multifaceted, so if I'm not, I, I, really, it's what I pay my attention to. I think um, what it's all about is the energy and the attention that you give something will inspire you to have at least a thought about it. So uh, I, 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 I'm not a big. Uh, proponent, like supporter of the idea of writer's block or creative block, because I feel like um, there are other ways to tell the story. And you don't always have to tell it Mm -hmm. in the way that everybody expects you to tell it, right? As uh, yourself Mm -hmm. being a dancer, now you're helping tell stories and you're telling some of your own through doing podcasts. So when something is, is some, when your attention and energy is not, the exchange is not as fluid anymore, it doesn't have to be considered a block what it could be considered is that right now that is not calling your attention enough for you to want to create around that idea, message, so on and so forth. Let's find another way to tell the story. However, um, what I would do is if I'm not feeling like attracted to a certain phenomenon that's going on, but yet I do feel like I want to say something, like, for example, uh, during times of civil unrest, there are times where where the attention that I'm giving to it, it's not as fluid, the exchange between my understanding of it, but I do want to say something. What I'll do is I will 
put my, I, what, I, what I often do is a technique. I say, okay, I'm not going to speak from my voice because my voice right now doesn't know what to say. I'm going to write from the voice of someone else. I'm going to personify someone else or something else. Like, for example, we talk about the riots. If I wanted to write a poem about the riots, but I've never been in a riot, then maybe I'll write a poem from the perspective of the building that burned down during the riot. So really, like, it's not even an option for you. No longer an option. Um, yeah, when, I mean, I have a poem called The Hardest, and not hard as in something firm, but heart as in the heart, the hardest. And the idea is that when you embrace, and when a creative, and I believe we're all creatives, but when someone who's actively, you know, uh, expressing that side of them, that creative side as a profession, as a career, whatnot, when they embrace fully that, um, that side of them, then there's always there's always creativity. Creativity doesn't stop. Even the brain, when the brain when you die, the brain keeps functioning after the the heart has stopped beating. So creativity is all around us, and there's you just got to find different ways again to tap into it because you can't use think you're going to use the same tool to unlock every creative door. You got to find a different way. So you said earlier uh, that you are multifaceted and. So that means that you identify as many different artists, many different, you have many different identities to who you are, correct? I believe so, yes. And so are these, one, are these identities that you accumulated all at once, or did this happen over several years? It's a great question. It took time. It took time. Um, I had the capacity for these different expressions but um to get to where I, I feel like i could call myself a songwriter call myself a stage performer call myself an artistic coach and, and writer um you know nurturing these things took time but i knew that I, I i feel if i was to think back when i think back i've always had the capacity for these different expressions and um now that i've embraced myself as an artist as a heartist um I'm able to nurture them just that much more and allow the doors to fling open and, you know, and, 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 and explore them a lot more. So Jamal, do you have a piece that you could share with us today? Um, I remember on your Facebook, uh, it was a pretty long piece, but I really think uh, it moved me. Anyhow, I know that for sure, but I really think that um, everybody deserves to hear it. I do have a piece. Um, this poem is about the mental the, the the state of mental health that the black community is in given that we've been struggling to have our civil liberties respected for a very long time so jake this poem is titled we are angry i am angry i am worried that we are always angry Fed up with passive systems of sympathetic speech for every subcategory of colonialism, it is not a phobia when your existence is sent to the bottom of the list of things important, and we fear that we will never be heard or cared for as equals. Our bodies will drink the tears we layer into our coward pillows as we shrink between the walls of violent labels, distant silence between the squalls of right-wing supremacists. 
We have gone absolutely stir-crazy because the simplicity of existing has given way to harmful tendencies, depression, and mental illness boil at room temperature when you are the only melanated person in the room, a room with one view. And oh, how beautiful the sight is when you look outside. You see life. You see light brighting truth to to purpose. You see others like yourself and recognize you are not so different. Everyone blooms in different seasons. All but none are perfect, but supporting each other makes every minute of our time worth the reason. Your exit, resurrection, grand entrance makes our sugar-coated shield of anger hurt less because I am hurting and I am worried that we are always hurting. Worry test levels send early stress levels to steal regular breathing from our lungs. Working part-times on top of nine to fives, on top of just to get bys, on top of oh me, oh me, oh my. We raise our heads to the sky, but our backs are hunched over serving this daily grind. Walking with feet heavy, 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 feet on fetish cheese heels. The only things steady are the tuition fees on the rise, yet we still we still dream of wheels flying in living colors. Through thick and thin meals are less fulfilling when you have chosen to become, when you have chosen between buying vegetarian and being rent. Cohabitation is the only option for those who don't survive the real estate spike, the relocate height, the relocate hike to the mountains to become a hermit seems more attractive though when you can't afford to live urban peace and serenity, asceticism just acts as distracting flapping of bat wings, heart aches that send alarming signals to your headspace more concerning than a butterfly's ripple effect, and the promise of a better tomorrow is but a purpose to promote the fortunate algorithmic politicians when the pain of debt comes in migraines like the fashion trends of the times. Living in a hurry to squeeze into clothing that makes us feel more adequate and less divine. That pain will remind us that freedom is the most expensive luxury, even though the cost is prefixed with the price tag free. When the button pops and pop culture no longer dictates who is, is in control of our healing, will our plea to survive transform to top priority? We will thrive, and the surprise of healing will become stronger than the feelings of sadness. But unfortunately, I am grieving, and I am worried that we are always grieving, filtering way too many unspoken emotions in one lifetime. The second spoke, then passed away to the sound, similar to a bomb with no clock to stop the watch. But I still see you, desperately vocalizing the kidnapping lullaby that shakes the stories in our throats, like a child sitting sitting in a strange man's strange like a child sitting in a strange man's car going through a drive-through photograph warped on a milk carton but not before seen while you snoozed in front of the six o'clock news what happened to being the voice of reason when the going gets tough how do we bounce back liam neeson how can we trade our realities for a superpower story movie hero at least for a moment dear black child of fantasy why do you react so drastically when it's the struggle that makes you fly the struggle that brought you here the struggle that made you try the struggle that makes you die before you arrive at the feet shore of Uncle Sam's plantations, sad and lonely, grieving beyond belief, losing your faith tomorrow before you earned your courage today. How do we demonstrate loyalty, loyalty, loyalty to the birthright of our emotions? No more deceiving deeper meanings. Breakthrough, breakthrough. I want to, but I am afraid and I am worried that we are always afraid, scared of change. We have become the very same sand beaten by the ocean waves. 
rock solid in our ways and defending our prison caves, imagination turning gray because we refuse to harness the positive surge from the negative rays. Modern day spirituality just ain't rolling out the red carpet for everyone anymore, so we can't experientially articulate the radical joy of cutting it, the irony of being intimidated by the world's only constant arrogant bastard, the cause of our anger, makes us live a life orphaned by going against the very grain of our existence. It's persistent, the rage against the wage of our heart's privilege. Love is free, but was never free. We always had to work for it, hurt for it, support the cause like a Rasta that says, if worse comes to worse, I'll eat pork for it. Wear your faith on your sleeve, tangle it like a kitten twine in twain, or an infant with a chain. Let the dis-ease of anti-racism dissolve into fast-acting fast anger. You'll trade for pain. Seal the deal. Accept the meal. Bacon, sausage, ham, hocks, and all. Let the doggone clouds retract the blood-stained carpet. Our anger no longer the soundtrack for the backseat driver subletting the storage space in the basement. Wash it with your prayers. Rinse it with your patience. Drain it through a rigorous filtration system, one that is proposed for inter purpose for interrogation, to produce a mood where you exude more gratitude and excuse less self-hatred. Laugh it up like a butler with hands of butter who thinks he works in an insane asylum. Remind yourself, that your mind is the most intelligent institute in the known universe. It cannot be caged. Breathe a sigh of, well, this is something we simply needed to get off our chest, whether or not it is politically correct. And while we watch wet molecules from our mouths form soluble compounds and scatter into confetti-filled fields, evaporate your truth into the atmosphere as if atoms were the event coordinators of parties in stormy skies. Take your tear of tears to the highest height until the degree of madness can no longer be contained. Unleash your howling anger into a fit of hysterics. Unlearn all laws that bound, up, that bound us up and tricked us into thinking our magic could ever be bound by physics. Brace yourself, and for the love of God, let your blackness shine like the rays of the sun that dry the pavement after days of heavy rain, so that when the clouds part on your beautiful smile again, only the existence of your brilliance remains. Wow. <sighs> How did that feel? That's a hard poem to recite for me because it's pent up hurt. It's, it's all the time someone said, go back to your country, you know, N-word. Um, it's all the times when someone said, get off my lawn, N-word. It's all the times that I saw my peers being offered tutoring when they weren't struggling, my white peers. But when I went to get tutoring, I was just told to take basic, you know, courses in high school. Mm. It, it's, it's all the times that my children have been, you know, pointed out for their color of their skin and been bullied at school. And, and it's for all the times that my fellow black peers in the black community have experienced hatred. And so the, the poem, it's a lot of hurt to recite it. But again, um, while I don't naturally attract to pain, uh, to, to create, this is a message I felt need to be said. And the writing process, can you take me through that? It was a late night thing. It was recognizing that the, uh, the work that I've been doing for so long as a person who wants to dis dismantle the walls of racial ignorance but now I'm still finding, you know, that 
I'm still finding that it still it still exists. And for me, when I wrote this piece, I had to take it. I use sometimes I'll write a poem out in full throttle all at once, but this poem took me a while to write. So a few days, um, and I'm constantly editing it because I want to make sure that the language I choose for this particular piece um, hits right in the guilt of people who continue to um, allow racism to exist. Right. And just for anybody listening right now, I'm sure you felt that. And as an artist, that's all we can do. That's all we can say. Because at the end of the day, our art is a translation of our emotions, our feelings, what we've gone through, what we have yet to go through. And Jamal, I think that was just a beautiful representation of things that are going on in the world right now, but also how you feel about them. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jake. I appreciate it. Thank you. And so if I'm just, to, if I'm going to wrap things up here, if you could leave the listeners with a phrase, a word, a quote, anything, a piece of inspiration, just to wrap this up and, you know, mic drop, if you will, <laughs> please. Well, I believe that racism is not, you're not born racist. You are taught it. And so it becomes a construct of the mind. And I'd love to quote Bob Marley, the late, great Bob Marley, who said in one of his songs, he said, uh, in, in Redemption Song, the song is, is a redemption song, he says, emancipate, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. So what Bob Marley is saying is we have to do the work within our conscience within and use intelligence to deconstruct and to free ourselves from these ignorant bonds that keep our, the, the humanity as a race, because that's the only race, human race, to keep us, uh, to unshackle those fetters that keep us so ignorant. Because imagine if we got rid of global war, global poverty, global racism. Those three things alone would put us in a position where we would, the entire world would be living their best life. Mm. But we still got work to do. So emancipate yourself. Mm. There's still an uphill battle. There's still an uphill climb. But I do believe that if we open our ears and if we open our hearts, then we will get there. Agreed. Thank you very much, Jake. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's Mountain Movers tradition that at the end of every episode, we do what's called a Mountain Minute. So it's a rapid fire round of questions. Um, I'm going to ask them one at a time. You're going to shoot me an answer, and we're going to see how long it takes you to get it done. Let's go. This, 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 this is, is the Mountain, mountain minute. minute. Three, two, one. Favorite movie. Interstellar. Favorite food? Curry goat. Go-to breakfast? I don't eat breakfast. Favorite song? Mm -hmm. 
Sam Cooke's change is going to come. Where did you first hear that song? My father's basement when I was seven years old. What is your guilty pleasure song? <laughs> I'm a player by 112. <laughs> Favorite day of the week? Friday. Least favorite day of the week. The ending of Friday. <laughs> favorite color. Orange. What time do you usually go to bed? <laughs> My sleep schedule has been ruined for years. Uh, uh, 4 so what time do you usually wake up? 9, 8, 7 a.m., 6 a.m. I sleep intermittently. I do, like, intermittent fast. I sleep intermittently. <laughs> if you could make any animal your pet, what animal would you choose? A blue whale. If you could change the stigma around one thing in the world, what would it be? That people who come from, quote-unquote, third-world countries um, are unintelligent. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? It would have been Malcolm X. If you could have... Dead or alive. Dead, dead or alive. alive. If you could have any superpower, what would you choose? It would be to have complete patience. To master patience. Sweet or salty? Sweet. Coffee or tea? Tea. Rain or shine? Shine. Day or night? <laughs> night. Favorite number? Eleven. Where do you want to travel? Africa. Fill in the blank. This podcast is... Dope Sauce. Thank you, Jamal. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for grabbing the mic and speaking with me today. Much love, Jake. You are amazing. To any listeners out there, big up Jake and follow the podcast. Oh, yeah. Have a good day, man. Take care. Thank you once again for tuning into another episode of the Mountain Movers podcast. Please check out the resources provided by Jamal in the episode details. Until next time, keep climbing. Love always, Jake.